0: So, this one records this. Uh, we are going to be on the third petition of the Lord's Prayer. So, let's go ahead and open in prayer and then we'll dive into that. Oh, Lord God, we Father, we thank you for the gift of prayer. We ask especially that you be with us as we pray that your will would be done, that we would understand what that means, and that we would gladly uh, suffer all things for the sake of your holy will. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. I don't want you to answer out loud, uh, but I want you to think in your heads and I want you to remember it. If you need to, some of you may need this, write it down now so you don't forget by the end of class. But write down or think, hold on to your mind. How would you define God's will? If someone says, What is God's will for your life? How would you answer that? How would you answer I want you to hold on to that. Just think about it. And then at the end, see if. You still think the same thing. I think a lot of times we, we overthink the issue of God's will for our lives when biblically speaking it's really very straightforward. I think Lord William will see that this morning. So we have on your hand out there, the third petition, thy will, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven." What does this mean? The good and gracious will of God is done even without our prayer. But we pray in his petition that it may be done among us also. How is God's will done? God's will is done when he breaks and hinders every evil plan and purpose of the devil, the world, and our sinful nature, which do not want us to hallow God's name or let his kingdom come. And when he strengthens and keeps us firm in his word and faith until we die, this is his good and gracious will. I want to first point out the connection to the first two petitions of the Lord's Prayer On both, on all of these first three, Luther repeats this refrain, right? So um, God's name will be hallowed. It's already hallowed in itself. You can't make God's name holier than it already is. Now, as he gives his reason and his explanation of that, you can't obscure God's holiness, right? Just like you can't make the sun shine any less than it does, but a cloud can obscure, it's shining. We can obscure God's holiness to the world through false teaching and ungodly living right that's what luther explains so too when we pray that kingdom come luther says his kingdom's coming whether you pray for it or not his kingdom's coming but we pray that it would what come among us it would come to us that we would believe that our friends and family would believe that our neighbors would believe that's what we're praying for praying that god's kingdom would come to us here god's will is going to be done it's going to be done there's nothing you can do to stop it. It's going to happen. God's will be done. So what are we praying for? That his will would be done among us in our lives for those whom we're praying for. That God's will be done there. We want to receive these things. And he explains what that means. So he says that he wants, we want the evil plans of the devil, the world, and our sinful flesh to be broken and hindered. We'll look more at that. In a moment but I want us to get right out from the beginning an idea in our heads that we're praying ultimately that our wills would be conformed to God's will that's what we're praying we're praying that we would make the first commandment that we would fear love and trust in God above all things that that would become the foundation for our lives that God's will that we fear love and trust in him would be the thing that drives us in our lives right so I'm praying for God's will. I'm praying conforming to your will. And what is his will? That we fear, love, and trust in him above all things. Um, probably one of the best passages that we have on this is our Lord himself. And the handout has that wrong. It should be 36 through 56, not 36 to 36. That doesn't really make any sense. But so uh, if you have your Bible, you can turn to Matthew 26, verse 36. I'm not going to look at this in full detail, but I want to point out some important parts of it that relate to what we're going to dive into here in a moment. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. Taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death, remain here and walk with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, again he came and found them sleeping for their eyes were heavy so leaving them again he went away and prayed for the third time saying the same words again then he came to the disciples and said to them sleep and take your rest later on see the hour is at hand and the son of man is betrayed into the hands of sinners rise let's be going see you my betrayer is at hand." and then it goes on um, the rest of that section deals with jesus actually being arrested and him telling them if god If I wanted to, I could call for angels and they'd get me out of this. Like, this is happening according to to God's will. So, what are some of Jesus' obstacles in the garden? What, What is he praying for? What does he want to not have to do? Okay, and even more specifically, what is the cup? What is the cup he's talking about? What kind of suffering? World. Huh? Physical suffering? Is Jesus primarily concerned about physical suffering, or is there something greater that happens on the cross? Uh-huh. Suffering, suffering from of God. separation from God. The, the wrath of God, right? So the men just had this immense Bible study um, this past Monday, long chapter in Jeremiah that deals a lot with the nations drinking down the cup of God's wrath. It's a theme throughout the Old Testament. God will make them drink the cup of his wrath. They'll be drunken and staggered, and then he will judge them. Right? And so Jesus is using this imagery. He's going to take the cup of God's wrath and he's going to drink it down to the last drop so that his wrath need not be poured out on us. Right? So, what Jesus is contemplating, and one of the reasons, even like movies that are pretty good on the crucifixion of Christ, one, one thing they cannot show because it's impossible is Jesus suffering the wrath of God. Like, you can't. You can't sh- How do you do that? Jesus is literally suffering hell on the cross for you in your place. That's what he's doing. He's taking God's anger and wrath poured out against sin and he's suffering it there in your place because as the son of God, that's what he's there to do. To fill the law on your behalf and then suffer on your behalf. And so he drinks that cup down to last drop. That's what he's looking at and saying, if there's any other way for me not to suffer that, then Let's do that. But if not, your will be done. And that's important to what we're going to talk about in a moment with Luther on this because what is the thing Jesus is looking at? He's looking at suffering, but in particular, suffering God's wrath. God's wrath against sin. That's what he's looking at. The physical suffering is horrific. Crucifixion, one of the most absolute worst ways to die. The Romans were really good at killing people. I mean, they were experts in it, right? We get the word decimate. What do we get the word decimate from? Does anyone know? Every tenth, what did the Romans do? If you were out of line, your group of soldiers, they would decimate you. One out of every ten, they kill. Right? Romans were good at keeping law and order because they knew how to use violence against their people. I mean, honestly, like they kept order because they were very strict. They would crucify you along the road so that when people walked by, they'd be like, "I don't want to be that guy. I'm gonna keep my mouth shut, my head down. I don't want to be like them." Right? That's what they. They're very good at torture. these things. They were good at this. This is what they did. Um, so Jesus is praying about that. And then <laughs> the disciples are doing what while this is going on? Sleeping. You know? And it says because their eyes were very heavy. Well, <laughs> Jesus is the one bearing all of this. And, you know, he keeps going to them. And he tells them, be on the lookout. The spirit is going, but your, your flesh is weak. We just talked about this Wednesday night at church. Uh, Romans chapter 7 that our flesh is sinful our flesh is weak Uh, the spirit is willing right the new man in us is willing but we often don't follow through um, with these things and that's that's what we have going on here so we have three enemies that Luther um, warned us about here in the catechism Um, sometimes people refer to them as like the uh, our triune or trinity enemy I don't like that language just because prefer you uh, reserve triune and trinity for gods. Um, These are our three foul enemies that are always out to get us, the devil, the world, and our sinful flesh. And one of the things we are constantly praying is that these three, that God would hinder their plans against us because the devil is constantly trying to take God's word from you. He's trying to get you to doubt God's word, right? Two things the devil's constantly doing and it's a sense the garden. He wants you to doubt God's word. He wants you to, you to uh, doubt your identity as God's child. He's always attacking those two things, right? So, for example, did God really say? <coughs> if you look around in our world right now, you could sum up most of the issues in our world today with saying, did God really say this or is anything going is Well, then the other part of that, so he wants you to doubt God's word, because if he has you doubting God's words, He has you doubting God. So then the next thing comes in, get you to doubt your your status as a child of God. Man, what you're going through really is hard. It's really awful. If God really loved you, if you really were a child of God, you shouldn't have to suffer that. Come follow my path. It'll be easy. It'll be simpler. I promise no suffering. Right? So he, he wants you to doubt who you are as God's child. He wants you to doubt who you are in your baptism. That's why Luther on various occasions says things like, you know, when the devil tempts you that way, that you can tell the devil things like, yes, I know I'm an awful sinner. Uh, Go tell it to Jesus, because he's dealt with my sins. Or just simply, I am baptized, right? The wonderful hymn we have, God's own child, I gladly say it, I am baptized into Christ, right? It's a wonderful hymn that makes this declaration. I am baptized, so I belong to him, So if you have any problems with me, you go and deal with Jesus. You talk to him. As we looked at several weeks ago, Jesus is interceding for us at the right hand of the Father, and so he's he's taking care of that for us. So when the devil tempts us in that way, we can rebuke him and say, go go talk to Jesus. I may be suffering, but I I know to whom I belong. I'm baptized. Go take it up with Jesus. Um, The world, when... And the Bible talks about the world. Who is it talking about? It's kind of a generic term, world. What are we talking about when we say world? What? Yeah, I mean, the unbelieving world, and not necessarily just individual believers, but kind of the unbelieving world as like a whole, like a system, uh, a power that's kind of opposed to you, right? Uh, While not a Lutheran book, uh, I think it has a lot of uh, great things in it. Um, Pilgrim's Progress, right? He goes through these various stages and the world is like trying to entice him with all of its offerings. And he has to fight and resist, right? Um, First John tells us you can't, you're not to love the the world or the things of the world because they're passing away, right? So the world offers you all these things, much like the devil. Look, I've got all of this. This is way better than what you're going through right now. Come join us, power, money, fame, whatever. Um, come and follow us and you'll have all of these things, Um, your father isn't taking care of you. We've got a better path, a better plan for you. Right? Christians fall into this too with the the name it and claim it stuff And, and some kind of causal circles, the health and wealth gospel. If you just have enough faith, you won't be sick, you won't be poor, you won't suffer. Well, tell that to Jesus for starters. I mean, if it doesn't work for Jesus that way, then how do you think it's gonna work for you that way? Or go and tell that to the martyrs throughout the world right now, right? Eight Christians die a day for their faith. Go tell that to them. If you just had enough faith, you wouldn't be suffering this. I mean, they would, they would probably laugh at you and be like, that's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. But in a affluent country, you can tell people that and people eat it up. And who sends these guys thousands of dollars a month? Often the poorest. Right, I don't know if you've ever watched him, Give us this much money, this, plant this seed, and you'll receive back from God much more. And who is it that does that? People that are desperate, right? And so Christians can fall into to these offerings of the world in different, slightly different ways, but the world's trying to lead us astray. Um, notice too what Luther says. These, these enemies don't want us to hallow God's name. They don't want his kingdom to come. So what Luther's explained with those, they don't want us to hear the word of God taught in truth and purity. They don't want us to believe the word of God taught in its truth and purity. And they don't want others to, they don't want others to either. That's what they're attacking is God's word and the true and pure teaching of God's word. So we let us stray from these things. That's what they're constantly going after. Right? That's, that's what the devil wants to attack is, is God's word. I was going to say a lot more too about the devil in the world and even like, the way demons and stuff work into all of this, but uh, that would probably take us into a whole different discussion of angels and demons and spiritual warfare. But I mean, it is part of it. Like if you, if you can't look at the world and see some of these things and look say, that's demonic. I mean, the devil's the, the author of confusion and chaos, right? Um, I mean, you look at things like abortion in our country, 70 million plus babies, who hates children? It's the devil. But the church father said it's because of the incarnation of Christ that the devil hates babies so much. Uh, because he became a baby for us and our salvation. Um, or if you look at, I mean, think about uh, the various drug use throughout, it's just rampant in our culture right now. Who, who desires self destructive activity? It's a devil. And it doesn't mean we can blame it on the devil and be like, well, they're not responsible for any of this. But, I mean, we have to, I think, be realistic and say it's not like. And if you talk to missionaries, Lutheran missionaries in other countries, um, for example, the Lutheran Church of Madagascar, they do exorcisms every day. They have little booths set up where they're doing exorcisms every single day, right? Here in our country, though, it's not as overt. Like the devil's not in your face because people, well, more and more, they're starting to revert to pagan religions in our country. But for a long time, science ruled the day, so it's much more subtle, it's much more in the darkness uh, where the, these things are happening. But it's there. And then, of course, um, we are often our own worst enemy, our sinful flesh. Is, we're, we're battling that as well. So we have the Holy Spirits. We, we, are, we are new people in Christ. We have the new creation, but yet we have our sinful flesh and they're constantly worrying. Our sinful flesh, even itself, is agreeing with the devil in the world. <laughs> Think about that. So not only do you have the devil in the world from the outside attacking you, But then you have your simple flesh from the inside, right? You're attacked on all sides. That's why Luther says at the end of the small catechism, right? Questions and answers uh, for Christians. The very end, it has, if you don't think you need the Lord's Supper, then he says, are you still in the flesh? Okay, if you are, read what the Bible says about your flesh and believe it. Are you still in the world? Read what the Bible says about living in the world and believe that. Are you still, is the devil still your enemy? If so, then read what the Bible says about that and believe it. I'm summarizing, but that's, that's the gist of what he's saying at the end of that. If those things are true, then run to the Lord's Supper. Go receive his gifts because you need those gifts. All right, speaking of Luther, any questions at this point? I'm going to move on to the large catechism. I'm just going to read a, a few sections from it, and we'll discuss them briefly. Um, I want to make sure to have time to get into several of the hymns that you have back there. Um, so the, the large catechism, the way Luther talks about this, I think is different than the way we would talk about it. That's why it's helpful to, right? C.S. Lewis says for every, like, modern book you read, you should read, like, three old ones because they have their blind spots. But they're not the same blind spots that you have, right? So they have their problems, their struggles, their blind spots, but you today have different ones. So you read old authors. Fix that problem. It helps, it helps you to reorient yourself and say, oh, I didn't think about it that way. I think Luther does that for us here. Um, so he says, from his large catechism, so in God's kingdom, although we have prayed for the greatest needs for the gospel, faith, and the Holy Spirit, that he may govern us and redeem us from the devil's power, we must also pray God's will be done. For there will be strange events if we were to abide in God's will. <laughs> strange events. I love that translation of, um, uh, if you've been a christian long enough that probably resonates with you you've probably seen a lot of strange events in your life uh, trying to abide in god's will we shall have to suffer many thrusts and blows on account from everything that seeks to oppose and prevent the fulfillment of the first two petitions so luther says praying that god's will be done is primarily it's going to get into more detail here that you would endure suffering that you would endure these assaults and attacks of the devil the world and your sinful flesh that you would withstand that you would be long-suffering and be patient under affliction. That's what Luther says you're praying for when you pray that I will be done. That you would endure. So then he goes on, uh, talking about the devil. Therefore he chafes and rages as a fierce enemy with all his might. He marshals all his subjects and in addition, unless the world and our own flesh as his allies. For our flesh itself is itself lazy and inclined to evil, even though we have accepted and believed God's word. The world, however, is perverse and wicked. Uh, Solomon said there's nothing new under the sun. Yes. So he provokes the world against us, fans and serves the fires that he may hinder and drive us back, cause us to fall again and bring us under his power. Such is all his will, mind and thoughts. So what is the devil's chief aim is to get you to abandon the gospel, to abandon Christ. We'll see that when we we get further in the Lord's Prayer, right? Uh, When we talk about temptation... Luther mentions, before he mentions other vices, he says despair. What is despair? It's the loss of hope. The devil wants you to lose hope that Christ can actually save you, a sinner. That's what he wants. He wants you to abandon the faith and not have any hope. Right? Um, We'll skip that part. If we would be Christians, therefore, we must surely expect and count on having the devil with all his angels and the world as our enemies. They will bring every possible misfortune and grief upon us. For where God's word is preached, accepted, or believed, and produces fruit, there the Holy Cross cannot be missing. I don't know if you're familiar with Luther's, Luther's great listing of the seven marks of the church. If you're familiar with that? From his, on the churches, on the councils and on the church. It's really wonderful. The seventh mark of the church is suffering. So you have, most of them are pretty easy, right? So you've got word, you've got baptism, Lord's Supper, things like that, confession, absolution, the office of the holy ministry, right, prayer, things like that. But then the last one is one of the marks of the church is the church suffers. They suffered under the cross. Why? Because the devil, the world, our sinful flesh are always attacking us. Always. So the church suffers. It's a suffering church. It's marked by the holy cross of Christ. And he repeats that again here. And so, let no one think he shall have peace At least not until you, what? Die. Die. Right? He doesn't tell you this stuff because you can't pack a huge stadium if you're telling people you will have no full peace on this earth until you die, right? Jesus promises, come after me, take up your cross and follow him. That's, That's what he promises. He must risk whatever he has upon earth, possessions, honor, house and estate, Wife and children, body and life, which is a line right out of what great hymn? Mighty Fortress. Mighty Fortress, right? Now this hurts our flesh and the old Adam. The test is to be steadfast and to suffer with patience. The references James 5, 7 through 8 there. In whatever way we are assaulted and to let go whatever is taken from us. So there is just as great a need as in all the other petitions that we pray without ceasing. Dear Father your will be done, not the devil's will or our enemies or anything that would persecute and suppress your holy word or hinder your kingdom. Grant that we may bear with patience and overcome whatever is to be endured because of your word and kingdom so that our poor flesh may not yield or fall away because of weakness or sluggishness. Then he says, such a prayer is our sure defense and protection now. Elsewhere, Luther will say on the fourth petition that if it wasn't for the prayers of God's people, that there'd be no peace of any kind on the earth. That Everything would just, it would just be terrible. Everything would just fall apart. If it wasn't for God's people praying um, and keeping these things at bay. The devil's will and purpose and all our enemies shall and must fail and come to nothing, no matter how proud, secure, and powerful they know themselves to be. For if their will were not broken and hindered, God's kingdom could not remain on earth, nor his name be hallowed. Right, So Luther says, when you pray this, you need to know that you're praying it and you're preparing yourself, right? I'm going to suffer, but God's will is that I endure. God's will is that I endure to the end and and be saved, right? What's the last thing he says there? When he strengthens and keeps us firm in his word and faith until we do what? Die. That's what we're praying, that we would stay in the faith until we die. One of my professors said we should count church growth not so much by baptisms, but by Christian funerals, Christian burials, right? And I think there's a part of it that's true. Um, when they've completed the race, um, then we, we know the church has indeed indeed grown. Um, all right, so back to um, the back of that sheet then, Actually, before we go to that, I'm going to look at James 1 briefly. I think I have time. I just did a quite a long Bible study, the book of James, uh, before coming out here. Uh, James is, I think, a great book for our day and age because people james is writing to are suffering the jews are persecuting these early christians right so this is probably written shortly after stephen's martyrdom Um, so shortly after stephen's martyrdom we have james writing to the christians these dispersed jewish christians uh, to endure to be steadfast so think about it they they're fleeing jerusalem they've lost everything they have no home they have no job they have nothing and so the temptation for the people James is writing to is twofold. One is perhaps return to return to be Jew again, to be accepted back so they don't lose everything. The second though, that James deals with throughout is the temptation to violence, to take up arms against their persecutors. Because remember, some of the people that persecuted even one of the apostles was a zealot. Zealots were like kind of assassins, right? To a, um, they, they wreaked havoc against the Romans by killing people. So the temptation for James' audience is, one, to give up and go back, or two, to take up violence to protect the church. And James is warning them against both of those things. In verse 2 of chapter 1, instead he says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Count it all joy. So when you suffer, the Bible says you're to do what? Rejoice. That is counterintuitive to what your sinful flesh wants to do counterintuitive to what the world says the world looks at you suffering and says ha your jesus isn't that strong right just like what well, they mocked jesus on the cross if you're the christ do what come down. come down save yourself when the world sees you suffering it says if he is so strong why is he letting me suffer why do you look so pathetic and foolish james says count all joy why <clears throat> for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness which is what luther says we're to be praying for So one of the things that brings about steadfastness is the very trials you're going through. Again, it's it's very counterintuitive. So Luther, along with the Bible, is telling us that this suffering is actually what helps produce a steadfastness in you. How do you learn to be steadfast, to be patient in affliction? You have to go through affliction. This is by Gerhard, um, who who I dearly love, but I don't love this saying of his. He says, those whom God loves most, he afflicts the most. And I've prayed many times, don't love me so much. (laughs) Maybe love me a little bit less this week. Uh, And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect. Um, I'll come to that in a second. That's not, we hear perfect and we think something different than what he's trying to tell us here. Uh, Mature would be even better. Uh, complete lacking in nothing. How do you mature in the faith, right? This goes back to Luther's, we talked about this uh, several weeks ago, eratio meditatio tentatio, prayer, meditation, suffering. How do you grow in the faith? You suffer, you suffer and it does what? It drives you back to Jesus. the reason suffering helps you to grow in the faith is not because of how great you do under the suffering. It's because the suffering drives you to Jesus, and you rely on him more and more. So your cross bearing drives you to the Lord, who then upholds you in the midst of suffering, and you realize his promises are actually true, right? That's what happens. You suffer, you go to Jesus, you rely on him, and you begin to realize that he is actually going to see you through it, even those things that seem really horrible and terrific and that you don't know if you can go on. You go to him in prayer, and you end up realizing that he does keep his promises. Even if it's not in the way we think he should, but that he actually does it. That's why he says in the next verse, verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously. Well, what wisdom here is he talking about? He's talking about when you're suffering, how to deal with it. This isn't just like a generic wisdom, like just make me wise. But this is specifically in the context Lord, help me to see my suffering rightly. Help me to understand it rightly. Help me to receive your gifts in the midst of my suffering so I can endure it. So he says, let him ask in faith with no doubting, etc. And he goes, that's a theme that carries throughout the, the book of James. Um, that God's suffering he's going to use for your goods. Um, so going back to the question I asked at the beginning. What is God's good and gracious will? His good and gracious will ultimately is for you to be saved, is to be a Christian. We'll look more about this in, like in our day to day lives in, in a moment, but um, that He would break and hinder every evil plan, that He would restrain our enemies. Right? Our enemies want to take these things from us. We're praying that God would, would protect us. Well, if you pray Luther's morning and evening prayer, what's a phrase you use in both? Let your holy holy angel angel be with me and evil follow me, what? Have no power over me. You're saying the same thing. Right? Protect me with your heavenly angels. Christians do not have a guardian angel. Christians have lots of guardian angels. You don't have one. You have a lot. Some of us need them more than others, right? (laughs) Some of us need like lots and lots Oh. but we have, we have these angels that are watching and protecting You pray that in the morning and evening prayer. You're praying the same thing here. The gospel would be done. That the devil, the world, our simple flesh, wouldn't win this, but they'd be restrained. Right? Um, uh, there's this prayer. It's from the, the old, uh, I'm sure you guys remember the TLH, the Lutheran hymnal. The, the pastoral campaign, the agenda book that goes with that for additional things that aren't in the hymnal, has a, a daily prayer for pastors um, and it's a really wonderful prayer. It's, it's quite long. But one of the prayers in there is that the Lord would be a wall of fire round about this congregation. That he would do what? Protect it. From whom? The devil, the world, and even <laughs> from ourselves, right? Um, our, our own sinful flesh. First Peter, right, talks about the devil is a roaring lion seeking someone he may devour. Right? That's, that's what he's doing. Um He's trying to devour, to defeat us, to bring us down. So we pray that that wouldn't happen. Um, God's will is that you be strengthened through his word and sacraments. Um, Turn to Romans 5. The Lord does everything for you, even the testings of your faith, which includes suffering, to strengthen your faith that you might grow in the faith. The devil, on the flip side, does everything against you to do what? Destroy your faith. Temptation is to destroy. That's why it says the Lord tempts no one. Because the Lord doesn't do anything that would destroy your faith. His goal is always to strengthen you in the faith. So whatever he brings your way, whatever he does, the goal is to strengthen your faith. And that primarily, of course, (laughs) happens through and sacraments. And when we're suffering, we're driven to... Word and sacraments. In Romans 5, Paul puts it this way, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Well, how do you get all that? It's through his word, through his sacraments. That's how you have all of that. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance steadfastness and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame because god's love has been poured into our hearts through the holy spirit who has been given to us so as god strengthens you with his word and sacraments so he makes you a christian and then you suffer god continues to use his word and sacraments to keep you in the faith so you can bear up and endure these things and continue to receive god's good gifts for you so god's will is that you would be saved, stay in his grace, live according to his will, resist the devil, the world, and your sinful nature. That indeed is the purpose of all of scripture. All of scripture has been written with that goal, that you would be in God's will. So, some misunderstandings of God's will. Um, I was given a book when I was um, in high school by some well-meaning relatives But this book said things like, when you get up in the morning, you should pray about, like, what shirts and socks you're going to wear. Whatever the Spirit directs you to wear, you should wear that that day. When you go to the grocery store, you should pray about what parking spot you should park in, etc. By the end of the book, you're like, if I did this, I would go insane. Like, how could you live this way? Well, see, the problem is, a lot of Christians want freedom where they don't have it, which is, When we're dead in trespasses and sin, we don't have freedom. And a lot of Christians think that's when they do have freedom. But we don't. We're bound, right? We're slaves of sin until Jesus frees us. It's Jesus through his word and sacrament that sets us free. Well, when we're set free, we have a great deal of freedom as a Christian to make decisions every day, right? To live within God's will as a Christian is to live within the fence of the Ten Commandments, right? If you're in that fence playing, you have a lot of freedom the example i always use for my my catechism classes is uh right if your parents tell you to to stay in this yard uh you can play and have you have this massive yard to play in but outside of this fence are lions and tigers and bears online right so you're going to it's there's death and danger outside of the fence um a wise child is gonna be like well i'm gonna stay in the fence because i don't i don't get devoured i don't want to go outside well That is how it is for us Christians. We have God's will, the Ten Commandments. It's a boundary for us. Within that boundary, you have tons of freedom about what you wear and what car you drive and what job you take and who you marry. Right? Whenever people start talking about soulmates, I tell them, your soulmate is whoever's on your marriage certificate with you. That's your soulmate. (laughs) (laughs) That's the biblical answer. Like this idea that you know movies want to push. Right? Every movie, like someone breaks up they leave a spouse or somebody to find their soulmates. That happens like every day in our country. Um, your soulmate who's on your marriage certificate. So that um, whoever you married, that's your soulmate, unless, right, something, unless you, then you have biblical grounds to, to end that, then that's no longer the case. But until then, um, that's, that's your soulmates. Saying you found your soulmate is not biblical grounds <laughs> for, <laughs> for leaving the person on your marriage certificate. Um, so you have a great deal of freedom there. In fact, um, I put two Latin phrases there for you. Uh, who knows where deus volt is from? There's a common battle cry during the know Deus volt, God wills it. That was the Crusades. That was, that was their battle. God wills it, this is what we're supposed to be doing. right? There are some things, um, I don't wanna get into the Crusades themselves, but there are some things where we know this is what God wills, this is what I have to do. It's what I must do. On the other hand, uh, James 4.15, Deo Valente, um, people used to sign their letters that. Some of you still do it, but you just put, if God wills it, right? Or you, you pray, you say, Lord, if it be your will, right, just like Jesus did. If it be your will, let this and this happen. Um, sometimes we pray for things. We don't know exactly what's best. We don't know exactly, there's some range of options. So we pray for wisdom, and we pray that God will work these things out for us. Um, sometimes we know this is, okay, this is what God will. This is what I must do. This is what scripture tells me. There's a lot of areas where we have a great deal of wisdom and freedom and we leave it in God's hands and say, well, I don't know what's best here, but I'm going to do my best. And um, if it be your will, you're going to, to bless us and it'll work out. And if not, then he'll close that door. And right, because In James' context, um, we often apply it to business matters because James says, uh, don't say, I'm going to do this in this. Say, if the Lord wills, I'm going to do this in this. Now, I think in the context, he's talking to the persecutors and rebuking their arrogance, but it does apply to all areas of our life, whether we're persecutors or not. Um, so as we live our Christian lives, we, we have boundaries, but we have freedom within those boundaries. And if you're living within those boundaries, you're in God's will. You don't have to stress every day. Am I in God's will or not? Uh, well, if you're sinning, No. That's easy, right? There you go. If you're sinning, no, you're not. If you're not sinning with whatever thing you're doing, um, then you're in God's will. And you can, there's a great deal of freedom and joy in that, and peace. You don't have to stress over every little decision that it's going to like radically change your life and ruin your life if you go this direction or that direction. As if God doesn't already have all those things under control. Like, you think you're going to, to screw up God's plan by using... Uh, like the Christian freedom he gave you within those bounds no you can screw it up by rebelling and sinning against him right you can bring all kinds of suffering that's not, not that you shouldn't have to go through through sin we've all done that um, but in your day to day Christian life you have a great deal of freedom and so you can delight in that rejoice in that and live in that um, and know that God has given you wisdom in his word live according to that wisdom and you have freedom to do all kinds of things any uh, comments or questions before we move to hymns? Yes. Yeah. Uh, so when we talk about the devil, that's kind of shorthand in Luther, in the Bible, for us as Christians, of the devil and his demons. Um, I would say in his minions, but because of the kids' movie, we can't really. It's not a, not a helpful imagery anymore. Uh, you think of little yellow people. Um, but the devil and his henchmen. There we go. Um, so that's kind of shorthand for that. So are there lots of demons uh, that we... Yes. Um, now... But again, they're limited. They're not, so the devil, some Christians have a view of like the devil's like on equal footing with our lords. And that's not the case, right? He is, the devil is, um, he's like a vicious dog on a leash, right? So you have this vicious dog on a leash and let's, there's a strong enough leash, okay? Um, And so where can that dog go? Only as far as his leash goes, right? And that's the devil. He can only go as far as the Lord permits him. We have wonderful comforting stuff on this in our uh, confessions in the formula of Concord, Article 11 on election, where it talks about this, that the Lord puts limits to the evil in the world, that if it wasn't for those limits, it'd be even worse than it was. Same too with the devil. He's he's a limited foe. He can't do anything or everything. Um, But I think we should be aware that the devil, demons, or we live in a spiritual world like i know in the western world we, we we want a scientific answer for everything so we want to see everything through science we want a scientific explanation for everything the bible gives us a very spiritual world where remember when um one of my favorite examples of this right is elisha uh, they come to arrest him and uh he has he's going off the couch so he has his servant answer the door and he says uh this army's out here to, to take you and he says let me show you something. And he comes out and he says, open his eyes, Lord. And what's around the army? Remember? Yeah, fiery chariots are all around him. And then Elijah prays again, and the army's blinded, and he, he takes, them, takes them away back to their village. <laughs> it's a hilarious story, right? Um, so this huge army comes for him, and he doesn't even move. He's just like, whatever. Like They, they can't touch me. Um, and so, But that's a good example, though, because could the servant see those angels? can you see the angels we we pray with angels and archangels and the whole company of heaven they're in the divine service with us can you see them no. do you believe they're there yes. okay so that's happening all the time all around us we're just oblivious to it 99 of the time and it's true for the devil too for the demons like they're there we're so obvious often oblivious to it um but we need to be on our guard um for their attacks uh you know, it's not, we don't, we don't want to fall into the opposite ditch, though, either of, like, everything that happens, like, the light bulb doesn't turn on, we blame the devil, whatever, you know what I mean? Like, we don't want to fall into, like, the opposite error, but we're often tempted as Westerners to not see spiritual reality around us at all. We just think it's not happening because we can't see it, we can't test it, we can't verify it, um, and so we kind of pretend it doesn't happen. But it's there. Um, it's all over the Bible. It's, it's all over... You know, um, the church fathers and our Lutheran fathers talk about these things. Um, even Luther, so 500 years ago, Luther writes on this topic of demon possession. He says, for the pastors, be sure that it's not some kind of medical or psychological condition where you're going to look like an idiot. I'm paraphrasing, but with Luther, that's really actually pretty close to what he says. You're going to look really dumb if you go in and you say they're demon possessed, and really it's a medical condition. Now you look like a fool. Right, so even five hundred years ago, they weren't just saying like everything's the devil. Sometimes they're accused of that, but it's not true. They knew there were other reasons for people acting certain ways, and they said you need to verify what you're dealing with first. Because um, sometimes I hear that when, when this gets brought up. Oh well, they didn't know better. They were just like these backwoods medieval types who didn't understand things. I mean, they built cathedrals, but whatever, you know, what do they know? They clearly were very uneducated and didn't know anything. Um, So hopefully that helps a little bit. It's it's hard to, how many do we encounter like every day? Who knows? I mean, uh, thankfully we're not aware of that. Probably be kind of terrifying, honestly. (laughs) Like we could see what's going on. Uh, Or the fact, I mean, if you could see the angels protecting you every day from the things they protect you from, that'd be really amazing. uh, But also kind of terrifying. Because angels themselves remember are terrifying. Um, whenever someone sees them in the Bible, what do they say? Yeah, the the angel has for not, why? Because they're terrified because they think the angel's going to kill them. Because they know they're unholy, the angel's holy, and they're terrified. Um, All right, let's look at some of these hymns. Um, I only put a few on here. I could have put many more. You should become familiar with the comfort and trust sections of your hymnal, especially when you're suffering. So the two places I always direct people, and we talked about one several weeks ago, so now I'm going to focus on hymns, is psalms. Psalms are there for you, especially psalms of lament. I'll actually talk about those uh, next weekend in the, in the sermon with what we'll be looking at. But hymns then too, hymns are almost sermonic if it's a good hymn. They're, they're, and a lot of pastors wrote these, so that's one of the reasons. They preach to you God's word and his comfort. So when we sing, we do a couple things. One, We are praising the Lord, but notice Paul says, too, we sing to one another. So when you're singing, you're encouraging those around you with these truths that you're singing, not just yourself. So you're singing to the Lord, you're singing to encourage others, and both with the sound teaching, but also then the comforts that these hymns give, right? So it's both sound teaching and for comforts. So it does matter what we sing. Um, This first hymn, if thou... But trust in God to guide thee. Some of you may remember its old name, if thou but suffered God to guide thee, um, is how it was in TLH. Um, so a different translation, but it fits what we've been talking about. The man who wrote this um, um, Newmark, he wrote this after he basically he's robbed and he's broke. So he's traveling and he's trying to get to his new new destination, new home, and he's come upon by bandits and they take so is about everything has like a few dollars left he gets to the next town and he doesn't know what to do he's kind of desperate like he has no money he has nothing um he ends up with this family who needs a tutor so he tutors the kids um and it's after that event that he writes this hymn right so it's not a lot of these hymns in this section were not written just like one day they just woke up and decided to write these they often suffered and then wrote these hymns right or uh, Many of, many of them lived through plague years. Um, if you've never read Daniel, uh, what's his name, Defoe, right? The one that wrote Robinson Crusoe. So he also wrote Journal of a Plague Year, which is a really fantastic little book. You want to see how awful it was to live during a time of widespread plague where you're burying like hundreds of people a day at your church. I mean, uh, check that out. So a lot of people went through things like that, and they wrote these hymns. Um, So let's look at this first one, 7.50, If thou but trust in God to guide thee, and hope in him through all thy ways, he'll give thee strength whatever betide thee, and bear thee through the evil days, who trust in God's unchanging love, built on the rock that naught can move. What can these anxious cares avail thee, these never-ceasing moans and sighs? What can it help if thou bewail thee, or each dark moment as it flies? Our cross and trials but do but press the heavier for our bitterness. Be patient and await his leisure. In cheerful hope, with heart content, to take whate'er thy father's pleasure. And his discerning love hath sent. Nor doubt our inmost wants are known to him who chose us for his own. It's interesting, Luther, in talking about temptation and testing, says that sometimes you can't tell whether it's God or the devil. Here's why. Because when the Lord's testing you with something to strengthen you in the faith, the devil often uses that very same thing to tempt you. And so Luther says there's times when you can't tell who it is because you're just suffering and you don't know where it's coming from. But that's why, like, stepping to the Psalms or to hymns that remind you that whatever God's doing, he's doing it out of his discerning love. He's not out to get you. He's out to strengthen your faith. God knows full well when times of gladness shall be the needful thing for thee. That's hard, right? Because we think that should be all the time. And we think then when we're suffering, we know when that time should come. When he has tried, thy soul with sadness, and from all guile has found thee free. He comes to thee all unaware and makes thee own his loving care. Nor think amid the fiery trial that God hath cast thee off unheard. That he whose hope meets no denial must surely be of God preferred. Time passes and much change doth bring and sets a bound to everything. All are alike before the highest, it's easy for our God we know. To raise thee up, though low thou liest. To make the rich man poor and low. True wonders still by him are wrought, who setteth up and brings to naught. Sing, pray, and keep his ways unswerving. Perform thy duties faithfully. And trust His word, though undeserving, thou yet shalt find it true for thee. God never yet forsook in need the soul that trusted Him. Indeed, so He says: sing, pray, do what God has called you to do, and as you're doing that, even if it's awful, uh, you can trust that God, at the right moment, the right time, will come through for you. Um, Paul Gerhardt, who is uh, the best hymn writer who's ever lived. Uh, he wrote 754 and trust your days and burdens we sang uh, our closing hymn last week was um, when uh, trial and cross grieve you um, why should trial and cross grieve you that's one of his as well um, Luther wrote some really great ones but even he would admit that Gerhard's uh, surpassed him so <laughs> I promise I talk to Luther about it okay <laughs> um, that was, not encouraging seances. Okay. And um, trust your days and burdens to God's most loving hand. He cares for you while ruling the sky, the sea, the land. For he who guides the tempests along their thunderous ways will find for you a pathway and guide you all your days. Uh, I'm going to skip down because we're running out of time. Uh, let's see. Well, you can look at that one. We're going to go to the backside. Uh, 758 is great because it starts off with something that's hard for us to say. The will of God is always best and shall be done forever. And they who trust in him are blessed. He will forsake them never. He helps indeed in time of need. He chastens with forbearing. They who depend on God their friend shall not be left despairing. Uh, it's, it's a beautiful thing in the midst of suffering to be able to confess the will of God is always best best down in Sansa 3 he says when saying sorely troubles me do not let me waver again we're praying for steadfastness in Sansa 4 grant me to say your will be done here he's even saying at his deathbed grant me to say your will be done um, 760 what god ordains is always good It's all really beautiful, but let's look at uh, stanza three. What God ordains is always good. His loving thought attends me. No poison can be in the cup that my physician sends me. My God is true each morning new. I trust his grace unending. My life to him commending. So whatever cup the Lord gives you to drink, the the hymn saying, there can't be anything that's going to, to be for your detriment in it. God's not trying to poison you. He's not out to get you. He's doing this um, to help you. So whatever your physician, right, the one who's there to heal you, sends you is for your good. So you can pray that will be done because you trust in the one who's in control of all things. Um, Santa 6. What God ordains is always good. This truth remains unshaken. Though sorrow, need, or death be mine. I shall not be forsaken. I fear no harm, for with his arm he shall embrace and shield me. So to my God I yield me. When we trust that the God who is in control is doing all these things for your good, out of his love for you, then you can bear up more easily, not completely easily ever, but more easily can bear up under suffering when you know that God is doing it for your good. Out of his love for you, out of his care for you, and that changes the way we view what we're going through. Then we can really count it all joy. Um, any thoughts, comments before we close in prayer? God also uses suffering as a witness to bring others to faith. To bring to faith. Oh, absolutely. Of suffering is just about you. Oh, it's yeah. Also about the witness through your suffering, and he uses that. And oh, absolutely. he also, too, he uses that suffering to help to help in your faith, to help those that don't actually understand it. Because it would be hard for me to understand a man that needs suffering a loss of a wife or something else because I'm not experiencing yeah. it. It's very difficult for me, them looking at me saying, well, you don't understand what I'm going through, where another man in faith, has gone through something like that and share faith because he has also gone through that. Yeah, in fact, so um, one of my favorite passages on this is 2 Corinthians chapter 1, where Paul uses the words comfort and affliction like 20 times. Uh, One thing he says at the end of that is that um, you comfort others with the comfort you've been comforted with. So after you go through affliction, um, what are you comforted with? The gospel. So that when others are suffering... How do you comfort them with the gospel? So your own suffering can be a witness to others because they see how you're enduring suffering, right? It's it's always been the case throughout church history, even during persecution. People are like, wow, they're suffering and yet they're still singing what's going on here. Um, Or even um, as you suffer a particular thing and then they suffer, then you can say, the thing that brought me through my suffering was the gospel. Even if it's not an identical suffering, even if we can't fully understand, we can't say, I know what you're going through, which by the way, is usually just bad to say to anyone suffering, like even if you've been through something similar. Um, The best thing Job's friends ever did was when they showed up and just sat there quiet, right? The moment they opened their mouths, they wrecked it all. When they just sat there quietly, they were being good friends, right? They sat there with him in his suffering for a moment, for seven days, and that was good. Um, So yeah, then we turn to them and say, I suffered great affliction too, and the comfort I received was through, through Christ and his word and his holy sacraments, and I want you to have that comfort too, right? So both as a witness and then also as a way to comfort the afflicted. Absolutely. Yes, good point. Anything else? God promises us to, because he's the Lord of peace, in Second Thessalonians 3.16, now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times, And in every way, the Lord be with you. Amen. Any other thoughts, comments? Riots. Letters to the editor. All right, let us pray. Oh, Lord God and Father, we ask that you would help us to endure the assaults of the devil, the world, and even our own sinful flesh. That we would be patient under suffering, that we would look to you, cling to you, and hold on to you knowing that you bring us all that we need at the right time, in the right way, at the right moments. May we trust in you for these things. May we continue to pray, thy will be done. In your son's name we pray, amen.